Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to Ejil the Podcast. I'm Surabhi Ranganathan and I'm here today with my co-host and fellow Ejil board member Megan Donaldson. Hello Megan. Hi there. In this series of podcasts titled Reckoning with Europe: Pasts and Present, Megan and I will explore the enduring legacies of European pasts in the structures of international law and the legal academy. Our episode today begins from a moment from last year which many of us experienced as exhilarating. I refer to the toppling of the statue of slave trader Edward Colstone in Bristol, UK. I must confess I watched the video many times, feeling the same sense of deep satisfaction at the statue's final splash into the waters. The events in Bristol did not take place in a vacuum. While immediately catalyzed by the upswell of protest against yet another police killing of a black person in the United States, necessitating the reminder that black lives matter, the felling of the statue also resonated with years-old struggles to bring down markers of oppression across the world. In Belgium, Leopold II, the man known as the Butcher of Congo, was plucked from his plinths. In the United States, losing their pedestals were Confederate monuments and statues of those implicated in the genocide of Native Americans. And back in Britain, renewed appeals brought Oxford to agree that roads must fall five years after the success of the original movement at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. But although widely shared, the exhilaration was not universal. A running theme was that, of course, slavery, empire and racism were all bad things, the responses to them had to be institutional and legal, not feral, as those celebrating appeared to those not. So today we will explore these themes, the joys and significance of toppling statues, institutional responses to the slave trade and empire, and we will touch upon the avenues offered by law. Our focus will be on Britain and its imperial entanglements, but we will turn our eyes to other contexts in episodes to follow. We have with us today a wonderful panel. Professor Matthew Smith of University College London is a scholar of Caribbean history with a particular interest in the interrelated histories of Jamaica and Haiti and is now the director of the Centre for the Study of the Legacies of British Slavery at UCL. Hi, Matthew. Hi, pleasure to be here. Dr. Mesna Kato of Newnham College, Cambridge, is a historian of the Middle East and the curator of a project on the archives of the disappeared. Hi, Mesna. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Welcome. And Dr. Rahul Rao, a critical theorist and scholar of politics at SOAS, the School for Oriental and African Studies in London, has written extensively about protest, resistance, and controversial statues. Hi, Rahul. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Wonderful to have you. Perhaps we might begin uh, a conversation with the concrete uh, where Surabi was and ask what meaning you'd impute to the felling of statues like Colston's, either meaning within, within your own history of time and place or what you think it might mean in political or historical terms. Mesna, maybe you could start? 
Sure. And maybe I'll start with my own feelings and my own sense of, of what it felt like to see Colston fall. Um, and apart from, you know, the, the symbolic imagery that Sarabi talked about, I think one of the most powerful things for me was to see the people who did it and the kind of camaraderie and spirit and popular politics that would allow and bring people together from all across the city to cooperate in the toppling of the statue. Um, there was this powerful imagery of um, figuring out how to tear it down with the ropes uh, that I found incredibly powerful and symbolic in its own right about what is necessary, what is the necessary work, not only to topple the statues, but the reparative justice that that, that, that act symbolized. Um, and, and, in, and it sort of also was a powerful moment of acceleration that there had been for decades multiple demands um, across different towns and cities in the UK in particular, but around the world um, to dismantle these architectures, these armatures of power these visible um, representations of white supremacy. And to see everyday people, local young people, elders, people who are organized, people who this had been their first time on the street, take into their own hands something that they had they'd felt had been mired in a kind of bureaucratic liberalism, it was quite powerful to see. Um, and I think was part of the fear that emerged from conservative circles when they saw this, that there was a visual element of visceral anger that was expressed in this act of dismantlement that um, resonated in really powerful ways. I would perhaps expand a little bit, uh, thinking about the moment in terms of where it's taken us. And I think this is an opportune time to assess that. Here we are almost a year since the felling of the Colston statue. And we know as you know quite well the the sorts of impulses that led to it, the way in which that activity of the physical removal of the statue was a uh, an activity that came out of a response to violence, brutal violence against um black people in the United States, um, you know, George Floyd, Rihanna Taylor, and others. And I think what is useful for us in Britain to consider is how that action actually becomes a widening of a conversation. I don't want to say opening because that conversation has been happening for some time. It's just that it's not manifested itself in the ways that we saw on June 7th of last year. But can we widen that conversation to think more uh, fully about what questions of representations of race of slavery, of these these deeper histories of injustice mean. And that's the that's the metric I'd like to see sort of used in evaluating the the sort of longer consequences of it. In terms of my personal view regarding it, of course I was glad that the that you know there was a reckoning finally with the statue. But I will also share quite frankly, as a non-British person, as a Jamaican, a person from the Caribbean, who grew up in, born and raised in the post-colonial period, I have a different 
sort of reference in my mind of what statues mean and what they represent. And for me, I grew up in an era and a place where statues were representative of black triumph and victory and resistance. I don't see that here. And in a sense, we have sort of come to expect the absence of that here. And maybe as we expand this conversation, that's a good fruitful direction to go to. How, how can we take this from a still centering of white supremacist figures to understanding more the histories and legacies of the people who actually made the empire, the enslaved people and their descendants? Rahul, does any of this uh, resonate with you? Yes, um, absolutely. <clears throat> I, w- w- before Colston fell, I had been thinking about statues for about five years, and I think my interest in um, statues began with Rhodes Must Fall in South Africa. And the reason that attracted my attention almost immediately was because I came to the UK from India on a Rhodes scholarship um, in, in the full knowledge that the origins of the scholarship were in the extraction of colonial wealth from Southern Africa. Uh, and so my first reaction, I think, was one of embarrassment in 2015 that it had taken as long as it had for this kind of protest to erupt on this scale. Um, there are lots of complicated reasons why it took 20 years after the end of apartheid for that kind of reckoning in South Africa and why it needed that to happen for us to be having this conversation in the UK. Um, but I think that that was sort of my initial connection to the story. And then, of course, it uh, snowballed into this enormous movement against colonial statues and relics of slavery and colonialism and apartheid all over the world. When Colston fell, I think there was this sense that, um, I think Mesner used the phrase bureaucratic liberalism. There had been a long-running movement to remove this statue through the proper channels using due process, etc., which had not um, yielded the results that campaigners were hoping for. And this was a moment of direct action where people seized on a moment uh, to, to, to push further than they had been able to before. And there was something exhilarating and joyous about that. I suppose the other thing I would say is that when it comes to controversies around statues, uh, very often the question of the statue is itself quite quickly dispensed with. Um, the statue is supposed to be merely a symbol for putatively more important material things. Um, and I think, well, first, that there's nothing mere about symbols, but also that we, we need to maybe pay attention to what is going on on a psychic register in these moments. So I think it's not incidental that Colston was rolled down the street and dumped in the water. For many people, this evoked the fate of uh, many of the enslaved Africans that he had been responsible for transporting from Africa to the Americas. Uh, and in other instances of statue protest, statues were beheaded and burnt and strung up from lampposts. Um, I think there's something very evocative about this, about the ways in which they reference particular and particularly painful moments in history um, that we are being called upon to confront in this very visceral way right now. 
there is a lot of agreement here amongst us. I think we've all related to this, uh, to the Colston statue, but all of the statues that came down over the last year with this sense of catharsis or the sense that this is something that speaks to uh, the desire for justice or, hist or for hist or the historical recognition and remedying of wrongs. But there have been other responses, right? And some of you have been confronted with them pretty directly. You've been asked, where does it end? Should Churchill fall? What about Gandhi? What would you say to other projects of destroying monuments like the Hindutva forces uh, destruction of the Babri Mosque in India or the Islamic State's destruction of Nimrud and so forth? Now, of course, you're welcome to answer these questions if you'd like, but we hoped you might say something about the meta question here. Where do these where does it end questions come from and what do they tell us about the political currents of our times and the anxieties of those who ask them? Should we start with you, Rahul? First, where does it end? I suppose my response to that question would be, why should it end? Um, the where does it end question, I think, invites us into two sorts of traps, one of which I think is really a trap and the other is a risk that we should um, sort of embrace. So the first is, is the, you know, the trap of drawing some kind of arbitrary red line around a sacred core of figures whom we cannot touch. But the other risk, I suppose, is that when somebody like me says, uh, why should it end? Everybody should be up for grabs. Uh, we risk being um, characterized as, as, you know, the, the snowflakes who can't deal with the brutal realities of the past and so on and so forth. I think what this conversation is about is not so much remembering history. I don't think we build statues to remember what happened. I think statues are very much about representing the values of the political community. And as social justice movements advance, those values change. Thank God they change. And therefore, I think the ways in which we visualize and symbolize the community have to change to keep up with that. What else is progress about if we believe in that much abused notion? Um, and so when you ask, should, should Gandhi be next? Well, Gandhi has been next. Uh, there was a protest at the University of Accra when a statue of Gandhi was installed there in 2015, a few months after Roads Must Fall erupted in South Africa. The protesters there argued that the statue of Gandhi should be removed because he was racist, casteist, and also because they said uh, contemporary India is a space for racism uh, in the everyday urban life of Indian cities. Uh, so the statue of Gandhi was removed. And as for the question of equating multiple instances of iconoclasm, I think there, is, there, is, there are lots of very facile equations going on when people equate roads must fall with what the Taliban and ISIS do, uh, we have to make distinctions about situations where minoritized groups are seeking a toehold in a public sphere in which they have no representation whatsoever, and situations in which majoritarian groups are engaging in these kinds of acts to ratify their stranglehold on the public sphere. Those are two very different situations. They require us, I think, to map where power lies in society and, you know, to confront the question of who needs statues and who doesn't. Um, it's a difficult question to adjudicate, but to abdicate a complicated response is, is to sort of refuse to engage in the work of interpretation. I share quite a lot of, of, of what Roel is saying. I would say that, too, that 
Um, you know, I mean, the, the question of what to do with monuments is a very old one. And, you know, for me, part of the imagery of Colston is also the imagery of the U.S. Army entering into Baghdad and tearing down Saddam's statue. And who makes claims about the liberatory act of, of tearing down statues also matters in that sense. So the kind of the question is also about who asks it as much as what it limits. And there is something embedded in the question of where does it end that is not only about we don't want it to end or we are scared of its ending, but also we don't want to usher forth a new beginning at all. And, you know, there is a kind of circumscribing that is happening about futurity, right? Like that futurity has a particular contour and any thinking beyond that is not just taken off the table by such a question, but is also about confining a sensibility about the commons and what it should visually look like and an imagination of this kind of public world. I would agree that the context part is very important coming to um, Rahul's uh, intervention just now, uh, I, and that's crucial. What I would add to that is to bear in mind that in the removal of a statue or any form of memorialization that is offensive and that has upheld a, a, a value system that we have generally, um, you know, societies have meant to pass or get beyond, uh, we should not forget that, nor should we forget that the system that created the statue, which is often quite different from the history that the statue represents, is quite is is different, right? It's separate. The Colston statue came up long after, uh, over a century after Colston passed, and and understanding why these memorials are erected at various points in time. What does it mean for that generation that put it up and the generation that chose to live with it? Um, has to be brought into how we discuss a, a urban space or imagine a, a sort of revised urban landscape without those statues or with other statues. I also would like to, to, to say that we, you know, as much as we talk about statues because they are um, full of symbolic meaning, uh, and, and, you know, and I fully agree with, with Raul that they, they are not histories in, in themselves, um, but the symbolism and the sort of um, importance they bear for various communities, that's significant, hence the anxieties that, that, that you've mentioned. But as much as we do that, we have to also bear in mind that there are uh, other memorials, some quite striking, some very subtle, that we pass in our everyday, that are very much uh, preserves of that same offensive history. So coming to the question of when, where will it end? I mean, it's not a question of tearing down every brick that, that was put up with money that was made by slavery. It's much more, uh, in some ways, bolder to have the conversations about how those bricks were put up and that even when you remove a statue, a building, change a name, it does not erase the history itself. And that history needs to be told and taught and learned
I am interested in this other register of encounter with the past, where where the past is not so much just there on a plinth, but is woven into the wealth, the material artifacts, the culture, the interpersonal hierarchies, the the existing corporate entity. And I wondered if if each of you, with your disparate experiences of this, could say something about that institutional side of reckoning. I'll start because my centre, the Centre for the Study of the Legacies of British Slavery, has been directly involved with this. And what we have noticed, particularly since the uh, events of last year, is indeed the sort of awareness and um, open acknowledgements on the part of certain corporations and institutes here in Britain uh, about their developments, debt in many ways that they owe to um, the slave trade and slavery and and the commercial aspects of that. We've also noticed it on a personal level. There have been individuals who have come to terms with their own legacies, their family's legacies, their corporate, corporate legacies and so forth regarding that. I think that's a very good thing. I think that's a very important thing. What I would caution against, and this is a general caution, is and it's it's very much connected to our our previous discussion on the symbolic meaning of statues, is that we don't see the history for which people are uh, apologizing or becoming aware of or acknowledging as dis, as having a greater distance from our present. And I think that is the great challenge that we face. It might be one thing to tear down a statue because the statue's relevance to a generation that has progressed. And you know, remember last year, a lot of these these movements to fell statues were led by younger people. Um, and you know, and and it's older, a sort of a, a certain type of generation that invests meaning in these things, holds on to these older views. But when we acknowledge these things, we can't use that as some sort of papering of the history, that somehow the reparatory action has been made, the, 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 the stain has been cleansed or removed in some way, uh, and there's some demonstrative action taken, whether it is a financial contribution or a charitable contribution, what have you, to repairing that. Those have their place and their meaning, but the history cannot be changed. And the history needs to not only be taught and understood, but also it needs to, 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 to be revised through new, new avenues of depth, of, of depth, really trying to understand what did, did this mean? Not only connecting it to con- contemporary issues of injustice with um, black and minority ethnic groups, but also what did it mean at that point in time that so, and for so long, that these questions of human exploitation had carried on. And I think that's the bit that really needs to be emphasized and, 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 and discussed. And as part of that, it comes back to a point I mentioned earlier, it, it, it involves centering the people who were uh, exploited, the, the descendants of, of, of those persons, understanding their place within the bigger history of the nation, the empire, and, and, and recognizing that, teaching it differently, talking about it differently, representing it differently, uh, has to be part of how we address these questions on a much deeper level, rather than the, the, the surface level of we remove a statue, we change a name. That's an important 
opening of, of, of something that we need to continue uh, moving toward. I think what's really also important in thinking about these institutional responses around uh, legacies is to think beyond the academy as the site of this labor. I mean, one of the most extraordinary efforts on this uh, on this was Malik and Nasser's work in the Liverpool in Liverpool to trace his own family. And what's what's always curious to me as a historian is when I go to Kew and I see all these people going to find their own family trees and whatnot, especially Americans. And I'm always sort of, uh, you know, there, there's never people, rarely people from the colonies or, you know, the empire who are making the same trip for multiple structural reasons, of course, but also what that, um, you know, collection holds and what it means that it holds it. But to think also that part of this labor has to become at some level popular history and public forms of retrieval. That is, that also is about oral history, is also about um, family history, it's about um, stories that, you know, the material history that is handed down from one person to the next, from one generation to the next. And so therefore, it's also about reclaiming a form of historical retrieval and a deprofessionalization, or at least a kind of alternative forms of historical retrieval that democratizes legacies of you know, inquiries in, at some degree and create through the work of retrieval the kind of politics that is desired and demanded in the process itself. As historians and political theorists, do you feel law has a role in these efforts to reckon with the past? The whole reason that I moved from the study of law to politics is because I came to see law as the outcome of a political process. And I became more interested in the politics that culminated in law as an institution that appears to solve problems. Uh, but I have been interested in the work of lawmaking institutions such as the British Parliament and in the way in which these institutions reckon with or attempt to reckon with the past. Uh, in 2012, the House of Lords uh, staged a debate on what it called the treatment of homosexual men and women in the developing world, in which uh, one of the astonishing features of this debate for me was to see white conservative members of the Lords stand up one after the other to bemoan the toxic legacies of British colonialism as they manifested themselves in anti-LGBT laws in other parts of the British Commonwealth. Uh, and this was astonishing because if you juxtaposed these debates alongside uh, debates on uh, on the bicentenary of the abolition of slavery, you see there a much more qualified, much more hesitant um, attempt to reckon with the enormous um, toxic legacy of colonialism and slavery. I, I think the law has been, like politics, an uneven, unevenly accessible terrain for different kinds of reckonings with the past. The law can circumscribe political um, 
um, possibility, or at least sort of tamp it down and uh, create these um, either silos or nar narrow corridor corridors of contention um, and uh, sort of formal uh, relationship to and formal structures of of how you know of of what that contention should look like. And of course, there's criminalization of any protest or, or anti-repressive measures um, or direct actions that contravene those corridors of, 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 of what is allowable. It's also a question of what, how do we relate to um, the relationship between freedom of speech and, um, and, and the law? Um, and, and what do we do with not only maintaining and sustaining um, the university at the least, but also the commons in general as a site of contention, protecting it as, uh, in so far as we can, as a site of contention. Because, you know, I mean, there's this interesting thing where, like, there's a, a, you know, a right wing or alt right or whatever you want attempt to to claim the banner of freedom of speech against discourses like cancel culture or whatever but i think the fundamental problem is is that the people who are actually disappeared historically are those are not those in power are not those who are quote unquote privileged or any of that um, so the law comes in and can be used in fact as a tool as part of a broader toolkit to protect, or at the very least, sustain as much as possible um, wider bounds of what can be said, what can be contended with, what can be fought over um, in public spaces that feel like they're increasingly narrowing on grounds beneficial not to the powerless. Well, I perhaps answer it more as a historian rather than someone who's who's studied the law. I mean, the law has been the instrument by which the powerless have been deprived of their power. It's been the instrument by which uh, oppression has been legalized, justified. People have been turned into property because of the law. The law is also the space that people who have protested against that very system have done it through the mechanism of the law. It's the tremendous potential of the law in that regard. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s main focus quite often was you change the laws around segregation. He'd never thought or, or imagined or said really that that's automatically going to fix questions of racial inequality. No, this is an important step because it is the law that is used to justify the, the, the treatment of, of people of color. You remove that law, you begin to move closer to uh, a space where you can uh, begin to imagine worlds of racial equality, uh, when we can debate whether or not that was achievable. But the, the point is that the law is an uh, instrument by which uh, both things can happen. It has historically been that way. Uh, and, in, and in many ways, with the moment that we are at now, there is the space for us to sort of reconsider the ways in which the law operates and continues to, um, to, to, to limit exercises of freedom on the parts of people. 
laws against immigration laws that are, are uh, constraints on uh, personal freedoms and uh, movement across borders. So I suppose one context in which to think about this is the role of uh, public interest litigation in India, which um, has a very particular history and trajectory. Um, when I was a law student, I did a number of internships with the kinds of uh, social movements and NGOs that filed a lot of PILs. And very often these were on pretty non-justiciable issues. They were on quite political questions that uh, in a well-functioning separation of power system, you might imagine judiciaries would not really want to rule on. But in the Indian system, the judiciary, as we know, was increasingly keen to, 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 I don't want to use the word encroach, but was called upon to pronounce on questions that we might think of as quite political. And this was often welcomed as a, as a restorative uh, check, a, a, a restoration of a balance that had been upset in a sense. But I think that one of the most important uh, effects or consequences of those PILs, and I'm thinking here also about the kind of litigation that happened around Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, for example, which criminalized homosexuality. One of the most important uh, um, implications or consequences of these legal fights wasn't so much what happened in the courtroom as the kind of extra legal conversation that they generated and aroused, regardless of how the courts ruled, whether they ruled progressively or regressively. In, in other words, the the law became a kind of useful strategic focal point around which to have a much broader public conversation. Even as we engage with the law, need to look beyond the law for the the you know the real drivers and arenas of social change. There is a kind of paradox to to this thing we call the law because some of the most profound legal changes are compelled by extra legal social and political action action that is condemned at the time as extra legal and extra extra constitutional but ends up being quite a strong shaping force in in determining what shape that law takes next and of course this is a never ending process because that law is then circumscribed in its implementation and uh, will need to be contested in turn and the story continues um, I just had a little note about this, about also the law as an archive. And maybe linking a little bit to, Raul, what you were saying, that, um, you know, th it is a register of protests in itself. It is a site of testimony. It's a site of case records. I mean, one of the most powerful uses of the law, I think, in terms of archive is... Um, M. Norbus's, um Philip's um, uh, poem, um, Zong, where she uses a case report, uh, Gregson versus Gilbert, I think, to and and the court records of the 130 enslaved who were um, drowned on November 29th, 1781, and she uses um, the court records of the insurers of that ship, etc. To, to write a poem that reclaims the history, you know, disaggregates that course, course case record and thinks about the haunting of the enslaved through the archives of the courts of the enslavers. And so there's something also really important 
and we and we see this certainly in 20th century sort of human rights law as well that the idea of testimony of petition of of that these become archives in and of themselves that are important and crucial as sites of visibility um if not recognition for people who who you know might not have any other avenue as yet and we'll take up that as yet the promises and complexities of negotiating between past and present in our conversations to come for now thanks to matt mesner and rahul and to you for listening To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.